David and Michelle, thank you for opening your home and your, uh, your garden. Uh, this is extraordinary. What, what a place this is. Just gorgeous. There's nothing more beautiful than this, this place. And I just want to thank you for, for doing that. And I, and I want to thank uh, all of you for, for spending some time with us, getting to know us a little better, uh, writing a check, helping out in campaign. It means a great deal to us. And uh, uh, David, you mentioned Anne. And, uh, and the fact that she insisted that I, I get in this race, that, that is the truth. Uh, I, I wanted to talk it over with her. And uh, every time I'd say, let's talk about the pros and cons, she'd say, talk to the hand. Talk to the hand. We're, we're just doing this. We've got to do it. And so she's actually insisted that I, uh, that I get in this because she was convinced that I was the only one that had the, the capacity to beat President Obama and then to get the country on the right track. So as the person who got me into this affair, sweetheart, what are you going to say for yourself? Women just know better. That's what we have to listen to what's in here in our hearts. And um, after the last time, um, I was pretty certain, as a matter of fact, I was so certain I had it recorded, I said, I'm never doing this again. They laughed and said, you say that after every pregnancy? <laughs> and I am the mother of five boys. Um, so yes, it was, um, it was interesting that it was Mitt that was being very rational about how difficult it is to win the nomination, and I'm like, don't give me any of that. Don't even hear. I want to hear about it because um, if you're supposed to do it, it's going to happen. And and I said, and then he says, oh, it'll be hard to be Obama. I'm like, I don't want to hear any about that. Yes, it's going to be hard. But I need to know one thing, and this was what was referenced earlier. If you can get in there, is it still okay to fix it? Is it too late? And he goes, I think I can still fix it. So that's what we have to do, and that's why you all are here. We have to fix it. We're running out of time. the waterfall, um, it's, it's almost there. And, and we look what's happening in Greece, and we look what's happening around the world. Um, we look what's happening um, internationally. This is a frightening world, and uh, we need a grown-up, and we need someone that understands the economy. Um, so I'm glad to introduce this grown-up to you all. Thanks. I don't see any media here, so I just, and she told us, uh, I know I'll be quoted, but that's okay, it's not that bad. Uh, when she said that, you know, that she knew, that she just knew, and that women sometimes just know things, I was reminded uh, about what happened to me. When I was serving as governor, the University of New York uh, uh, did an analysis and concluded that I had more women in senior positions of my administration than any other uh, governor in America. Uh, over half the people in my senior, my cabinet and chief of staff and so forth were women. And, and so I was asked why that was. And, and I responded with this little, this, some of you heard this old joke about three men trying to swim across the Colorado River. And the first man fell to his knees and said, God, give me the muscles to swim across this river. And suddenly muscles appear and, and he jumps in the river. But the river is going so swiftly, it bangs him across the rocks and he finally emerges a mile or so downstream, badly bruised, but alive. 
The next man seeing that gets to his knees and said, God, please, please give me a, a boat to get across the river. He stands up and boom, a boat appears, it's a rowboat. He starts rowing down across the river, but of course it capsizes and likewise a mile or so downstream he gets out. The third man gets on his knees and says, God, please give me the brains to get across this river. At which point he becomes a woman. <laughs> remarkable homes like this and meet wonderful friends and we also get the chance to see if you will just American everyday citizens living their lives and as you do you come away more optimistic about the country if you, if you learn about America just from watching the TV and you see the evening news you recognize you're seeing a very narrow slice of America and, and it's the people who done something unusual that day typically not a good thing and, uh, uh, and that's what puts them on the news. But if you get to do what Ann and I get to do and campaign every day in different parts of the country and meet different folks, you come away saying, boy, this really is still an extraordinary country. I mean, yesterday I was in uh, San Diego and uh, I met with the, uh, the founder and chief executive of a company called New Basis. And they make uh, devices that, that are used in back surgery. And uh, this gentleman came to the United States in his teenage years from Russia, uh, had a dream about building an enterprise, and now he has a, a company that has $600 million in annual sales and, and 1,200 or 1,300 employees. And he said, so isn't that amazing in this country? I met another guy in uh, Western Michigan named Norm Byrne, and uh, Norm has a factory that employs hundreds of people. He makes electrical products. Systems that go on the floor and the wall, breaker systems, all sorts of electrical products. He has over a hundred patents to his name. And so when I went into his office and I saw all the patents framed, I said, you know, Norm, where'd you get your, you know, advanced degree in engineering? He said, I don't have one. I said, where'd you get your undergraduate degree? Don't have one of those either. Just an entrepreneur. Came up with some ideas, started sketching them out, sent them to the patent office, got patents, built a business, and he employed hundreds of people. I met another guy. Uh, Bob Dobbin, uh, his name. It said, Dr. Bob Dobbin. I said to him, oh, uh, you must be a PhD. What's your PhD in? He said, no, no, I'm an MD. Now, the reason I thought he was a PhD was I was in his foundry. He's the owner and manager of a foundry. I didn't think he'd be an MD, but he was an MD. He said, oh, yeah, I used to practice, practice medicine, but malpractice and Medicaid and Medicare reimbursement. I got to be so bothersome, I decided with my dad to start a business making casters. These are the round wheels that go on the bottom of big things that need to be pushed around. Custom Caster is the name of his company. I just go from place to place and am impressed with the entrepreneurial spirit of the people of this country and recognize that that entrepreneurialism is what, is what makes America's economy do what it has done. You realize the income per person in America is 50% greater than that of, of Europe. And, uh, the average European. And, and of course, if you look around the world, it's higher than, by a wide margin than just 50% in the other nations around the world. And, and it is, in my view, not because we have superior DNA. Our DNA is like the other human beings on the planet. It is instead the, the principles, the foundational principles of, of the American experiment. And they work. 
when the founders wrote the Declaration of Independence and they said that we were endowed by our Creator with our rights, and among them were life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. That last phrase we, we may breathe over a little quickly. The idea is, in America, unlike other places in the world at the time, we would be free to pursue happiness as we choose. The circumstance of birth would not determine it. The language, which was our native language, would not determine it. Government would not determine it. We would instead be a nation whose economy was driven by individuals, each pursuing their own best interests, building enterprises as they might have dreamed. And, and that is what made America what America is. It's a remarkable land. I, I sometimes wonder, were they brilliant, these founders? Or inspired? I probably think both. But because what they crafted here became a magnet for the entrepreneurs around the world, the innovators, freedom lovers. This is the place people wanted to come. This was the land of opportunity. And it is what makes America today the economic powerhouse we are. You know, I, I look across the country, and as I hear about jobs being created, they're created by men and women with dreams and ambition. We're able to raise capital and, and, and try their idea, most of which will fail, by the way, but a few of which will succeed. And their success does not make us poorer. Their success makes us better off. We celebrate success, risk-taking, and achievement, and reward it in America. And heaven help us if we have people who try to divide America between those that have succeeded and those that haven't, because those that succeed help lift all of us. Now, one of the things that concerns me today is that I watch our president and the people around him having never had any experience in the private sector having never created a job, they think they know best how to guide the economy. And what they have in their mind is a vision of America dominated by governments, by, by individuals they respect, people like themselves, highly educated, spent a lot of time in the faculty club at Harvard, and, uh, and they believe they can guide the economy better than can individuals all pursuing their own, their own dreams. It does make sense, after all, that smart people, bureaucrats, could sit down and do a better job deciding which type of energy company to invest in, which type of technology to invest in, uh, what kind of health care you should have, uh, who should provide it to you. All these, these smart people could do a better job. It, it makes all the sense in the world, as opposed to saying that individuals, all doing whatever the heck they want, some without education, could go off and build businesses and, and succeed or fail. And yet that, of course, that latter model is the only one in the history of the world that's ever worked to lift people out of poverty and create permanent prosperity. And so they go about their, their, their plans, and their, the president's program is, is consistent with his vision of America and the economy. And, and it, is, it, it consists of a nonstop attack on economic freedom. We have political freedom, we get to choose who we vote for. We have personal freedoms and religious freedoms. But economic freedom is what drives, of course, the base of our economy, people choosing their own path. And they're attacking that day in and day out. I did a little calculation, uh, it doesn't take very long to do this calculation. Uh, the federal government consumes 25% of our economy. States and localities consume between 10 and 15% of our economy. That's almost 40%. If Obamacare is allowed to stand, 
they'll pick up another 9 or 10% of the economy, directly controlled by the government. At that stage, we will have about 50% of America, of our economy, controlled by government. Not satisfied with that, their regulators are going deeper and deeper into certain segments of the economy that they don't yet control. Energy, uh, financial services, obviously health care, agriculture, piece by piece, deeper and deeper. So what they don't control entirely directly, they want to control through extensive regulation. Again, with this model that government knows better than free people. The president said when he campaigned that he wanted to fundamentally transform America. He's doing it. I don't want to transform America. I want to restore to America the principles that made us the strongest nation on earth. campaign really about the soul of America, what America is going to be. And, and the difference in path could not be more stark. I, I'm going to turn to you, by the way, for some questions. So think about something, I see Tom here, he's always got a lot of questions. So think about a question or two. But, I, but, but just, just you look at the differences between electing a Republican, and I hope I'm the Republican that gets nominated, I think I will be, uh, and electing President Obama. So, If he is elected, if he is elected, without question, we will have trillion-dollar or near-trillion-dollar deficits every year for the next four years, at the end of which we will have approached Greece-like debt levels. If I'm president, I will cut spending. I will do, by the way, I'm going to look at every federal program and ask this question. Is this program so essential, so critical, it's worth borrowing money from China to pay for it? And with that test, I'm going to do a lot of programs. programs, I will actually cut spending. When I was governor of Massachusetts, I didn't just slow down the rate of government spending. I actually cut it down from one year to the next. I reduced it. And, and that's what has to happen. So one, I will cut spending, I will cap it, and I'll finally balance our budget. Then, then look at another area. Healthcare, the president will have the government take over and manage healthcare. There is no question in my mind. Where they're going to is a point where they will be able to tell you which procedures you're able to get that if you're of a certain age or you have a certain condition, this is what you can get, and if you don't, if, 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 if you don't qualify, well, then you don't get that procedure. That's where they're headed. It's a type of rationing. And, 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 and that's, if I'm president, I'm gonna repeal Obamacare, and we're gonna stop it in its tracks on day one of my administration. continues in office, why, with regards to energy, he, he of course doesn't like any of the energy we're used to. He doesn't like any fossil fuel, be it oil, gas, coal, or of course nuclear. He likes wind and solar. That's, I love wind and solar, but just not that much of it. And, and if I'm president, I will develop our oil, our gas resources, our coal resources, we'll have nuclear power plants again, and I will finally bring in that pipeline from Canada, one of the easiest decisions ever. Another couple of things. One, one is, there's one place the president's willing to cut, and that's our military. And uh, I don't think the world is safer. I, I don't think that, that it makes sense for us to abandon our long-standing policy of having the capacity to fight two wars at once. I don't want to fight two wars. I don't want to fight any wars. 
But I want to have that capacity. He is removing that capacity for the first time since FDR, saying we're going to be able to fight only one war at a time. And to tell you the state of our military, we have fewer ships in our Navy than any time since 1917. We have fewer aircraft and older aircraft in our Air Force than any time since it was founded in 1947. Our troops, of course, were stretched to the breaking point in the last few conflicts, and yet the President wants to reduce the number of troops by 50 to 100,000. And, uh, and this is all consistent with a trillion dollar cut over 10 years in the Defense Department, which, by the way, Secretary Panetta said was a doomsday scenario. And yet that's where we're going. That's where we're headed. My own view is, by the way, we should increase our Navy purchasing from 960 a year to 17. We should buy more F-35 aircraft. I'd add 100,000 active duty personnel. I give the veterans the care they deserve. Because I happen to believe, as Ronald Reagan said time and again, that American strength is our best ally. I believe American strength is the best deterrent of war that has ever existed, and I will build a strong military. just one more difference, and that is I'm convinced that if this president is re-elected, the war on business and economic freedom will continue. I don't think the president likes you very much. <laughs> if you're in business, I, I think he, he looks at you as a necessary evil, and maybe not so necessary. Uh, I love you, all right? <laughs> I, I, love, I love business. I, I, love, I love people who employ other people, who have dreams and ideas and are willing to start enterprises and put people to work. All good things flow from successful enterprises, businesses. Good jobs come from good businesses. Rising incomes. If there are lots of jobs, well, then people are competing for employees and so they have to raise their wages. Good things. A tax revenue goes up as people are employed and businesses are making money. Those revenues can build good schools and care for seniors and have a strong military. I, I want a strong business sector. I, my, my, when I heard the head of Coca-Cola say that, that the business environment in America is less hospitable than the business environment in China, I knew we had a problem. All right. I want to make sure that America has the most attractive business conditions in the world. That every entrepreneur once again says, I want to be an American whether it's energy or regulation or tax policy or labor policy or legal policy or health care policy, I want America to be the best place for business. So I want to meet with business people and say, how can we make you more competitive? How can we make this the best place for financial services? How can we make it the best for construction, for agriculture, for manufacturing, for high tech, for low tech? Why do I want to do that? Because I like jobs. I like people having the chance to work and pursue their dreams. This is what it's all about. The president doesn't get that. He spent his life as a community organizer. He doesn't understand how this economy helps the very people that need that help the most. I love America. I love the principles on which this country was founded. I'm going to restore them with your help and get this country strong again. Thank you so much.
couple of questions, but somewhere around here is Tom McCaffrey. Where'd Tom go? You're around? There's Tom way back there. Guy back there with the white hair looks much older than me. He's actually a year younger than me. That, that, hold on, hold on. That, that, guy, that guy named Tom McCaffrey, he and I were boyhood friends uh, in Michigan, and our, our parents had a cottage in Canada. And uh, right across from Michigan on Lake Huron, and, and we hung out as, as boys and, and continued to be best friends. And uh, uh, I didn't. I was thinking about entrepreneurs. Tom's dad, Frank McCaffrey, was was working at, at a uh, insurance agency, and uh, they weren't doing the kind of job they ought to do for their their clients. And and he had some big clients, and he decided that that he was going to leave that agency and start his own agency. And so, like the entrepreneur that he was, he went off and started his agency. And he was only able to get one client to go with him. But it was a good start. It was General Motors. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Tom. <laughs> this country is just so much fun. It's so great. Any, qu any questions, please? Ken, uh, thank you for your vision. You are so awesome. You know, the other day the president had an interesting interchange with the president of Russia. The, uh, and you, you all heard that in the open mic, the president saying this is his last election and after the election he'll have more flexibility to deal with missile defense. And uh, this is really troubling. It's alarming. Uh, one, that he would uh, think he, he has a, uh, a buddy relationship with Medvedev and Putin that he can't share with, uh, with the American people. Uh, two, that he has plans with regards to missile defense, which are even weaker than those he's already agreed to. And you know that he withdrew our missile defense sites from Eastern Europe, from Poland, because that was Russia's number one foreign policy objective. And he did that to reset relations with Russia, to be friendly with Russia. Oh, I'm sure they like him a lot, by the way. Uh, Medvedev, by the way, did you know that he attacked me last night? He always put out a statement attacking me that I was a person from the old era. I, get out of, I should get out a calendar and realize that the, the days of, of the, the old Soviet Union are gone. I should be more modern and so forth. It's like, yeah, great. So you're campaigning for Obama, too. So I'm very troubled by it. In, in a world where, uh, where Pakistan has nuclear weapons and where Pakistan is a fragile nation, uh, you could you could see a nuclear weapon fall in the hands of, of someone who might try and use it, and therefore a missile defense system makes all the sense in the world. I remember when all of our liberal friends uh, uh, laughed at Ronald Reagan. You know, called it Star Wars. No way would the technology ever allow us to intercept a missile. Well, guess what? He was right, and they were wrong. Time and again, that man was proved right when everybody else was wrong. We have missile defense capability. We should be employing that capability to protect ourselves from a rogue missile, from a rogue nation. Now, why in the world the Soviets are so Soviets? Excuse me. Why the Russians? <laughs> my calendar is up. Why the Russians are, are so are so uh, uh, insistent that we not pursue new uh, missile defense? I, I I just don't know, but I can imagine uh, what what's, what's in their mind. And. Uh, and, and I've seen this president interact with Russia, Russia long enough to recognize he has this, this view of, of becoming friendly and, and trying to reset relations. That hasn't done anything for us. They blocked us with regards to crippling sanctions on Iran. They blocked us with regards to calling for regime change in Syria. They seem to sidle up to, to whoever is the world's worst actors. And, and, it, it happened, and so the idea that somehow we need to get close to them, if they were reciprocating, I might, I might have something to 
to learn from this experience, but but, but that is not the the example that, that we've seen. One thing on this note, I hate to go so long on this, but I, I'd love you to be aware of this. Um, we this president signed a new a new treaty called the New Start Treaty. It's a it's a missile defense, a nuclear missile defense. Excuse me, nuclear program uh, limitation treaty. And under this treaty, uh, we limit the strategic nuclear weapons. Now, I'm going to come back and define what a strategic weapon is, as opposed to a tactical nuclear weapon. But it limits the number of strategic nuclear weapons. And the president heralded it, a one-third reduction, he said, in strategic nuclear weapons. Well, let me give you two numbers. The Russians had 1,500 of these. We had 2,200 in a bold negotiating ploy. We limited the total number you're allowed to have at 1,500. <laughs> exactly what Russia has. They were required to reduce no nuclear warheads. We, on the other hand, did the reduction. And we were heralded this as a big step forward. Now that's on strategic nuclear weapons, where we will now both have 1,500. Then there's something else on tactical nuclear weapons. How are they different? A nuclear bomb is a nuclear bomb. The difference is the missile they're mounted on. That's the only difference. A tactical nuclear weapon has a missile that won't go over the ocean. And, uh, and so Russia has 10,000 of those. They have 10,000. We have somewhere between one and 2,000. So their lead, their nuclear lead is massive. They won't negotiate on that. Won't even talk about it. All right, talk to the hand, all right? That's how they are now. They, they only wanted to talk about the place where we had a lead and where we worked on an agreement to bring our lead down so we're now equal with them. This, this is, look, I, I, I just, you know, I believe that other nations will do what they think is in their best interest. I don't think they'll do what they think President Obama would like them to do, just because he's a nice guy. And I think we have to show strength and resolve, stand with our friends around the world, and with regards to the Russians, recognize and respect their interests, their self-interest, but not bow to them in any way, shape, or form. Thank you. Long ago, I heard uh, T. Boone Dickens talk about how much natural gas we have, and the price of 260 uh, a unit, it was like uh, unbelievably cheap. And that he saw fracking back in 1953 was his first fracking operation. Can you talk about how dangerous fracking is and, and, and what we could do with natural gas if we were able to really explore it? Yeah, thank you, David. Uh, how many investments do you have in natural gas? <laughs> Don, you're looking, you're looking. I don't need to hear it right here. Uh, what, what happened about uh, 15 or 20 years ago was they learned not just to drill vertically into the earth, but they learned how to drill vertically and then turn the, the drilling pipe and go horizontally. And they can go and tap pockets of oil and gas a mile or two from the, from the site of the original uh, uh, hole. And, and by virtue of that, they tap into all of these pockets, and then they, they force fluid in and push out the, the gas that's there, or the oil that's there. And they call that, the pushing of the fluid, they call it fracking. And, uh, and some environmentalists are very frightened that by pushing in that fluid that they will contaminate the water table. The water table is way, way, way above the, uh, the oil and gas table, but there's concern about that. Interestingly, the states have been regulating fracking for a long, long time. And, uh, and we haven't had any significant challenges as a result of problems, as a result of, of fracking, the states manage it. Um, we have about a hundred years of natural gas, and uh, and the ability of natural gas to go into our transportation fleet is right there. You can liquefy it, use it in automobiles or trucks, or you can just pipe it as natural gas 
and use it in our truck fleet along the interstate highways. This is it's a no-brainer. We have to do this. We have to reduce our demand for oil, particularly from foreign places, and so we got to use that natural gas. And and the president's folks are trying to keep us from doing that. How do they do it? There are ten different federal agencies that are now asserting they have the right to regulate fracking. And and by virtue of this, the reliability of that source of energy has been called into question. I, I spoke with the head of Dow Chemical. He said we, we wanted to build a facility in Oklahoma. One of the feedstocks of the facility is natural gas. But because of the EPA and the regulators trying to shut off the flow of natural gas, we don't have a reliable supply here. So we decided to build our $20 billion new factory in Saudi Arabia. Well, they don't seem to have that problem with fracking. We, we uh, step after step, this administration is choking off the private sector, attacking the private sector in ways that are unnecessary. In my view, in this case, it's to drive up the price of energy, to do what they, I mean, the, the Secretary of the Interior said he would not drill for more oil even if the price of gasoline got to $10 a gallon. Secretary Chu, the Secretary of Energy, said he wanted to see gasoline prices in America reach European levels of 8 to $10 a gallon. But these guys are trying to drive up the price of energy in this country and uh, in order for solar and wind uh, to, to be able to be more economic. And, and that's a vision of America that is just different than one that fundamentally believes in the free market and believes we should develop our resources to free ourselves from our dependence on foreign sources of energy. Thanks, David. To earn more money to give to me. Thanks, of the government is just so massive and so out of control and so automatic, as Tom says. How do you rein it in? And, and in some respect, I think you have to come in with a dr dramatic restructuring of the government, the way corporations do. The challenge is you've got to get it through Congress. We really do need to get a Republican House and Senate for them to say, okay, we'll get rid of this agency and that agency. There are 47 different federal job training programs, 47 different ones. They report to eight different federal agencies. The overhead, the bureaucracy, the lawyers, the public relations consultants, the list goes on and on and on. I get rid of all of them. Take the money, send it back to the states and say you do what's best for your own people. The Secretary of the Navy, John Lehman, some of you may know John Lehman, under, I've seen a nodding head back there, uh, under Ronald Reagan. He told me numbers that uh, we've now checked out turned out to be true. It tells you just, just how extreme things have become. Government has no competition. There's no one that, that, well, they probably do have competition. They just don't realize it. Other nations are competing with us. And, uh, but they don't realize they have competition. And so they just keep on growing without regard to opportunities to downsize, to modernize, to eliminate. He was telling the story about the purchasing department at the Navy. He said, during the Second World War, we commissioned a thousand ships a year. And Navy Purchasing, it was called the Bureau of Ships back then, had a thousand people. He said, by the time he became Secretary of the Navy, we were only commissioning 17 ships a year, but Navy Purchasing had grown to 4,000 people. 
Today, we commission nine ships a year, and Navy purchasing is 24,000 people. Now, the challenge with that is not just how much we have to pay the 24,000 people in salary, benefits, and retirement, and so forth. It's that they all have to do something. Right? They all have to approve things, and okay things, and meet with various vendors. And so, if you're selling to the Navy, you've got to deal with all of these bureaucrats. And it takes us forever to buy an ore. I mean, is this, 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 you know, you, you, you answer, you, you know, the old story about the, you know, the $500 hammer or whatever that story was. I mean, that was the real cost when you consider all the people that have got to do all the approvals. This, this is what, and, and the poor supplier, they all the hoops you got to go through. This is what's happening throughout government. It's frankly massively out of control. And, and one of the things I look forward to doing is bringing in people with business backgrounds into some senior positions in government, eliminating agencies, eliminating programs, combining departments, taking Navy purchasing, for instance, as well as other DOC purchasing, and cutting them back to the bone the way it happens as it happens in businesses. Taking a little risk. These guys are so frightened that they might make a mistake. They hire more and more people, more and more regulations to make sure nothing bad will happen. Look, risk exists in the world. And you can't spend billions and trillions of dollars to avoid every little risk. So I, you know, I look forward to, to doing what every business does, and that is having a fiscal conservative at the helm. If you're not fiscally conservative in business, you're out of business. And, and I'm going to get government modern. I'm going to once again get America as the best place in the world to do business and restore the principles that made us the nation that we are. Thank you so much for your